Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. Even though it was widely anticipated, the release of a draft opinion from the Supreme Court that would overturn Roe versus Wade sent a jolt through America. But as much discussion as we've had about it in the past two days, and it's been a lot, it's still not widely understood just what a profound blow this draft ruling could be to the fundamental rights that many of us have come to take for granted. One of the clearest and most thoughtful explainers of what's going on in this ruling and just in the Supreme Court in general is Kimberly Whaley. She's a law professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law and a former assistant U.S. attorney. But you may recognize her from her work as a CBS News legal analyst, her appearances on CNN, MSNBC, NBC, BBC, NPR, or her many regular columns for Politico, The Atlantic, The Bulwark, and The Hill. She's also written several books, including an upcoming book, Kimberly, welcome. And when do you sleep? Well, the news cycle makes that a little bit difficult, Matt, because the Constitution is now jumping from the headlines a few years in and it's uh unfortunately unabating so but thanks for having me on i'm always happy to try to explain some of these concepts into regular language for people because it's so important it, it really is and it's i really appreciate having you for that exact reason uh, really we're in we're in need right now of your services there's no there's no feeling in the world like being able to have a really good lawyer to call and it's in a moment like this where america is under duress that I'm, I'm very happy that we can call on you. Now, let's turn to the ruling itself. So in this, and it is a draft ruling, we'll talk a little bit about the, the so-called leak of the ruling in a little bit, but in this draft ruling, Justice Samuel Alito writes, we hold that Roe and Casey, the controlling cases when it comes to abortion, that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. Now, you explained some of the legal history and doctrine behind Roe and the idea of a right to privacy in a quote you gave yesterday to Politico. I was wondering if you could explain that for our listeners a little bit further here. Where does this idea of a right to privacy come from and that it's there in the Constitution, even if it's unenumerated? Well, honestly, Matt, I think framing it around the right to privacy, which goes back to a case called Griswold versus Connecticut, was probably an analytical error on the on the uh, part of the United States Supreme Court. That case held that basically government can't ban married couples or, or couples from purchasing and using contraception. And the court used this language around the right to privacy that is was used, I think, to justify Roe, and people have said, conservatives in particular, said, wait a minute, the Constitution doesn't have those words. But actually, it goes much further back than Griswold versus Connecticut. It goes back to a couple of cases, two or three cases in the early 20th century, the 1920s. And all of this derives from 
the 14th Amendment's due process clause. So just to back up a little bit, when the original Constitution was drafted, with a couple of exceptions, sort of wonky exceptions, there aren't any express individual rights in that Constitution. Mm -hmm. The framers thought that really what it's about is making sure government doesn't get too powerful. So we're going to split it into three branches. And the idea was, well, if we have three branches and everybody gets checked by two other branches, we don't have to worry. And we have the states as well. We don't have to worry about government getting too powerful. Then in, in uh, 1791, it enacted what we know as the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, first amendment, second amendment. Then after the Civil War, when the country was trying to, re to integrate formerly enslaved people, and there was a lot of pushback from the states, the, the, the Constitution was amended to add the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendments. The 14th Amendment is where Roe comes from. And in the 14th Amendment, there's something called the Due Process Clause. That goes all the way back to the Magna Carta of 1215, when sort of rich, wealthy people in England were tired of the king having all the power and they agreed on a set of rules. And one of those was this idea of due process. Listen, king, you can't throw us in jail or, or assassinate us or take our property unless we get a hearing. And in these cases back in the early, in the 1920s, one of the issues was the state of Nebraska passed a law saying it's against the criminal laws of Nebraska to teach your children a foreign language, including German. Mm. And there was an actual, uh, a religious parochial school where a teacher taught a 10 year old the German language and was arrested and criminally convicted. That case went all the way to the US Supreme Court and the court said, when you think about liberty under the due process clause, really originally you're saying, okay, you can't put somebody in jail, but there's something so embedded in this idea of liberty, liberty from government interference, that we're gonna say there's just certain things that are off limits to the government, including telling families and parents what languages they can teach their children. That's off limits. That was the first case really, where the court started saying, liberty means more than just what's articulated specifically in the constitution there are just certain things relating to family life that states federal government you just can't involve yourself in these are private private areas and again in griswold they talked about the right to privacy but that's really really the concept and honestly matt i don't think you could probably interview most americans and no one is going to say, yeah, I think it's okay for government to tell me what I can teach my own children in my own home. Right. right. Even though that's not expressed in the constitution. And there's a lot of things that have come out of that idea. Can, can government tell you that you have to forcibly be sterilized? That has been coming out of this whole idea of liberty. No, government, you can't do that to people. You can't forcibly make somebody undergo a surgery they don't want to undergo this idea of health care lots of stuff that's not expressed in the constitution and i think when I, abortion rights have been framed around oh this is something special for women that they get some sort of goodie bag of things but no really what it means is government can't invade the family and start making decisions about reproduction and whether to have children, when to have children, how to have children. That's just off limits for government. It's all sort of related to that original idea in Meyer versus Nebraska, 
that families get to decide how to actually educate their children in the home. That is so fascinating, especially in light of a lot of the reporting that emerged around the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that she's been cited, including on the right, as having some concerns about the way the road decision was reached and described. And it does come down to this idea of locating the foundation of Roe in a right to privacy and that that would set us up for problems that it would be too easily sort of pruned from the, 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 the tree of, of rights that are understood under the constitution. And she expressed this idea that it would have been perhaps better to, to locate this, this, this understanding of rights within that equal protection clause in the 14th Amendment. But it sounds like you're saying, no, that's really where you find it. It's a misunderstanding and a, and a subsequent misreading, perhaps intentional, that there's sort of an invented right to privacy. No, the, the, the 14th Amendment has us covered here. Well, unless we're comfortable having a cascade of rights just go out the window, right? Unless, unless if the if the the rule is, and you mentioned it with Alito, and it's a little more nuanced in the draft opinion. But if the rule is, if it's not in black and white in the Constitution, then government can do it. We're in for a heap of trouble. Mm. I mean, that means government marriage isn't in the Constitution. I'm not talking gay marriage. I'm talking marriage. It's not in the Constitution. So can the government? Can the state of wherever you live? tell you who you can and cannot marry because it's not expressed in the constitution. I mean, people got so upset about masks and vaccines. We are opening ourselves up to a whole heap of pain. If the idea is that old document has to chapter and verse have every detail of what our rights are or government can do whatever they want. Now, equal protection, there's it's another part of the 14th amendment. It's a little bit different in what it does. It has been construed to basically mean that the government can't single out people with certain immutable characteristics and then just treat them differently because of your immutable characteristic. When I say that you're born with brown skin or you're born a woman, right? Now, that, that none of that is expressed. Race isn't articulated in equal protection. Gender isn't articulated in equal protection. And so I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg's point was we have a misogynistic, just like we have a racist culture, and to frame it around the rights of women is just going to be a problem because women are, are you know, females don't have perception in our culture as, as having equivalent dignity and humanity to males, right? There's definitely this idea that women are supposed to be nurturers, breeders, mothers primarily, and workplace equality, other aspects of full citizenship have to be secondary to that. So I think her argument was if you treat it around, oh, women have this special, this special backpack of goodies, I, I know I say, I mean, and that's a bit cynical, but I think that's the idea. That's a problem. You should do it around gender. But the problem with that and this equality, Matt, is the court has never treated women as having the same equal protection rights as as people of a different race. Mm. So if if you come and say government treated me differently because I'm black, you would get what's called a strict scrutiny test in court and the government would have to come up with a really, really, really good reason. For right. women, it's intermediate scrutiny. So the again, even the court has said, we're gonna tolerate some discrimination against women. And the other thing in the 1970s, um, there was a case out of California 
around pregnancy discrimination involving some kind of disability benefits out of the state. And the argument was, okay, all these other physical incapacitations are covered except pregnancy. And they used the equal protection clause and said, wait, you know, wh why do women, why do women when they're, you know, I've had four children, you are physically incapacitated for quite a while. Why is that somehow not treated physical incapacitation that a man could have? Mm. And the court said, no, we're not going to treat pregnancy as somehow about gender. So even when it came something that basic, the court wasn't willing to do it. So it wasn't willing to, to basically uphold the rights of women in, in a serious way, frankly, in the way that, that we've seen other rights. Of course, there's a lot of problems with equal rights in this country, but when it comes to gender and women, we are still in a moment where there's just this subtext that girls and women have their place. And, and it's, it's accepted in society. And I think that is what came across in the draft pages of the Dobbs decision. So I don't think the answer is unfortunately equal protection. I don't, I don't think that would have this, a better reception by this five, four conservative majority, but one never. Well, it is interesting. The, that kind of selective reading that comes through, at least in your commentary of what Justice Alito is saying in this draft opinion, he does seem to really cherry pick the, the rights that he sees as firmly rooted, and this is, this is your language, that Alito tolerates unenumerated rights, rights that don't explicitly appear chapter and verse in the Constitution, the right to use birth control, the right to educate your children as you see fit, as you said before, only so long as they are, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. And what really stuck in my craw about that is the subjective nature of what is deeply rooted and what is not. Things that are deeply rooted in our history and traditions are frequently bad. Slavery is deeply rooted in our history and traditions too. So this, this as a so-called strict constructionist who says that it, it's gotta be in black and white on the original parchment or it, it doesn't have the force of law. This seems, this seems awfully self-serving and it, it kind of creates a legal test. Again, I'm not the attorney here. I'm not the legal scholar, you are. But it does seem to be creating a legal test out of thin air that sort of has the same substance as that Potter Stewart, I know it when I see it about pornography. So did you have the same impression that he's sort of creating a, a, a standard here out of, out of whole cloth, out of nothing? And does this basically end up saying this draft opinion that we justices will decide what's a right and what isn't based on what it feels like to us. A hundred percent. Now that language you mentioned deeply rooted in history tradition, that, that does what that's from prior case law, it's floating out. And people have probably heard of what I think is a mythological distinction between originalists and living constitutionalists. This is a uh, man, you know, construction of this conservative federal society over the past few decades, this idea that good conservative judges pay attention to the text and and the original meaning of the Constitution. But the Constitution's vague and it's old and it's there's not a lot of terminology to flesh out these definitions. So every judge is going to judge. And I think you're right. What this opinion, the draft opinion does is basically says, we'll decide for you. And Alito doesn't hide behind your argument. I mean, you make a, a great argument with respect to race. And I do think even though we have a deepless, deeply racist country still, 
there still is at least an understanding ostensibly in, in polite conversation that racism is bad. That's not the case right. when it comes to misogyny. And he goes back and says, kind of traces how women didn't have the rights to manage their pregnancies in the 18th and 19th centuries, but women didn't have a lot of other rights, couldn't vote, couldn't decide, couldn't own property. If you were, if your husband divorced you, you had no rights to your children. Your husband could forcibly rape you and there was no legal recognition of that because you were really some form of property. So that can't be the metric. And you know, the, he does give a nod to, okay, well, I know there's these other things that people care about. And frankly, the underscore, the undercurrent is, and white males will care about these too. So we're not gonna touch these unenumerated rights. And he lays out a couple distinctions. One, he says, well, this involves an unborn life, an unborn fetus, and that somehow that's a distinction, but that's not something the constitution's recognized. This court has also said under the eighth amendment that execution is not un cruel and unusual punishment. So we have a regime where government can kill people. So why would an unborn fetus somehow outweigh the right of a woman? It doesn't make any sense when killing people by government is something we tolerate. The second thing he says is, okay, I mentioned strict scrutiny, which is really where Roe was going. Hmm. Then a later case called Casey didn't even really talk about intermediate scrutiny. It manufactured this undue burden test that we can talk about. He then goes to the lowest level and says, oh, well, to restrict abortion going forward, you still have to have a rational basis. But rational basis just means if the government can come up with any reason, including we want women to, to bear children, that's okay. I mean, so it's not a test. And then the last thing, and this, this is the part I don't think people have really seized on. He just in a throwaway sentence says, oh, well, some of those, I, some of those kind of protected areas against government influence, they're far, far afield, quote, far, far afield of determination regarding pregnancy. No def, no explanation of far, far afield, no definition of far, far afield. So that is really where we'll let you know. And guess what? We happen to be four white males who could never become pregnant, including, and then there's Amy Coney Barrett, who's an outlier, I think, on these issues, probably. We're not elected. We were, three of us were put on the court by a president who didn't win the popular vote and was impeached two times. And we can never be fired or held accountable at the ballot box, but we're going to be the ones to decide moving forward how much protection people get against an overbearing government. And let me just say too, I mean, this is stunning for people, Matt. It doesn't say anywhere in the constitution that the Supreme Court gets to interpret the constitution. The court wow. found that unenumerated right for itself in a landmark case called Marbury versus Madison. Right. That's unenumerated itself. So if Alito wants to take this reasoning all the way to the end, the, Su the Supreme Court's pronouncements are irrelevant because they don't have that power under the constitution. It does descend into madness at a certain level, like when you're doing parsing, literally parsing sentences and finding where you've placed commas in the Second Amendment to see what's a controlling clause and what's not a controlling clause. And it, nowhere in there is common sense. And that's really where I wanted to turn to with you next. And you alluded to some of this a few minutes ago. Mary Ziegler, a professor of constitutional law at Harvard Law School, said that the language in this draft means that, and I'm quoting here, the court has painted itself into a corner and maybe by design, whether abortion is different or not from these other issues that are protected under the constitution, this will simply invite conservatives back for the next round. Now you laid out 
some of the issues that may be affected if the court continues to go down the road that Justice Alito has started to pave with this draft ruling. That includes the right to decide on your education for your own children, the right to marry someone of a different race or of the same sex or while in prison, the right not to be sterilized without consent. I mean, the, the list goes on and it, it's pretty frightening. My question for you is, for anyone who cares about these kinds of rights, how worried should you be today that your rights are next? I think if you are in a traditionally disadvantaged class, that is, you're not a, a white male, you should be very worried. I think it's unlikely that the court is going to hold, for example, say it was a liberal state that passed a law that mandated that fathers need to give bone marrow to children if they need it for cancer treatment. Take that as an example. That's saying you need to compromise your bodily integrity because you're a parent of this child and this child's life matters. Never would that ever hold up in the court. I mean, it's not that different, except it's a lot, I would assume it's, I mean, I've never been a bone marrow transplant, but it's not the same as pregnancy. It's not that different than saying, listen, mother, you need to compromise your health and even your your life. It's 14 times, you're 14 times more likely to die from pregnancy and childbirth than abortion. You need to do it to save someone else that you're related to. But for the rest of the population, yeah, I, I, I think that, we are on a trajectory sending a lot of this stuff back to the states. That was Justice Brett Kavanaugh's rationale during the Dobbs oral argument. Justice Alito says, I think cynically, if you're a woman and you worry about this, you can run for office, you can vote. But of course, you know, only 8% of the population supports reversing Roe versus Wade, and it's still happening. And Republicans are still dominating across the country because of gerrymandering, because of voter suppression, because the electoral system isn't even functioning anymore. That single party minority rule is taking over America. I mean, it, it's we are on this very serious trajectory to authoritarian state where if you're not in the preferred class politically, socioeconomically, racially, gender wise, you're going to lose. Now, just to be clear on abortion ex itself, so our listeners understand this. What this means is that states can decide. Mm. All that Roe said was states cannot pass a law interfering at the end of the day after Casey, interfering with an abortion, with a, excuse me, a pregnancy until about 24 weeks. And the mm. idea was just a matter of logic. At that point, the baby can't survive on its own. So it still is really part of the mother. When, right. when it can survive on its own, we're going to treat it as some kind of a separate entity in some way. But I think what, what Professor Ziegler could be referring to is the language in this draft opinion suggesting that even the fetus has some kind of personhood. And if that were the case, we could see in the future a constitutional ruling banning abortions across the country, period. That is, I mean... Say Dobbs comes out in January. If you're in Massachusetts, you can get an abortion because the states get to decide. If you're in Texas, you can't. But the abortion fight isn't over. We could see a situation where the court would say, okay, we can execute inmates even if we don't have strong DNA evidence because we have a public interest in being being strict on crime. But but we're never we're not going to even allow the voters to decide to give access to abortion rights. That's where things could go when it comes to abortion. And I should just note too, the idea that he talks about 
well, women's rights have gotten better, all this kind of stuff. The same political machinery that has taken down abortion rights also was behind the Hobby Lobby case in which the Supreme Court struck down contraceptive coverage under Obamacare. So this, these people don't want you to all, won't want women to be able to use contraceptives or at least have easy access to contraceptives. And also when Build Back Better was still floating around with, with Joe Biden, the idea of paid medical leave for, for pregnant, for child delivery, that was so controversial, it was taken off the table even before the, the last bill died. So we're, it's a heads we win, tails you lose situation for women. You can't, we're not gonna let you have access to coverage or financial resources to prevent a pregnancy. We're not gonna let you terminate a pregnancy, even if, for example, say you're, you already have two kids, you decide you want a baby, you and your spouse decide we want a third and you get a, you get a cancer diagnosis while you're pregnant. You gotta decide, do I get chemo or do I carry the baby to term? If I carry the baby to term, I might not survive to raise my three children. That, that decision is off the table now. It, it's in the hands of politicians. So, so w- women are really being put in, in a box. This is, this is not just about abortion. This is about p- moving gender rights back many decades, if not centuries, where the, the incidence of your birth, the fact of a uterus and the, the capacity for reproduction means you are in some way just indentured to your body and to society as a breeder. And, and that's that, you know, you mentioned slavery. That's the, of course, LGBTQ rights, are, I think are, are not far away. And, and I also think races, races is probably not, not off the table in terms of the court deciding, well, as you indicate, not express anywhere in the constitution. So we're going to let the states decide and the states deciding is what got us into the civil war because the Southern states wanted to enslave human beings indefinitely because it, it was great for their economies. Yeah. It's the, the whole notion is so mind bending again, not a legal scholar. I'm just trying to apply some common sense to, to this, the whole idea that you have got to find support in the actual wording of a text from 250 years ago that couldn't possibly contemplated the circumstances of society today, but did contemplate all kinds of things that were considered normal at the time. It's just, it's an astounding way for, that on the face of it, that, that people could put this forward as, yeah, this is, this is a pretty rational legal doctrine. And we actually think we should organize our society around it. But the pushback to that on its face being ridiculous has been to some degree, all right, maybe the logic of this is tortured. Maybe Justice Alito is kind of being selective in his strict constructionism. But from a practical standpoint, this isn't going to matter because abortions are already severely restricted in so many states. And so many more abortions are being done with with drugs rather than surgically. So access to that will will that method will will still be possible. And so you do see this argument, including from right wing commentator Eric Erickson on Twitter, which may have been I, he may have won Twitter as the absolute stupidest take of the last forty eight hours in my book. But right on the heels of that kind of argumentation, the New York Times published an analysis yesterday pointing out that legislatures in twenty five states would almost certainly move to ban or substantially restrict 
access to abortion. And some women would indeed be able to travel out of state or would be able to get access to pills, in some cases, illicitly. But the upshot is that for the, for the vast majority of women, especially women with many fewer resources who are disadvantaged in other ways, this would have a substantial impact. So I know you've spoken about this on, on other media outlets. Could you just help us understand this question? I mean, first of all, it's, it's ridiculous, this idea that this would have a minimal impact. What would the impact actually likely be then and if this does get finalized? Well, after Casey, there were efforts to roll back abortion access. And sure, it is really restricted, particularly for low-income women. I mean, the, the first pushback was to just make it so difficult for the woman, right? So you have to mandatory fetal heartbeat. So let's shame them. Let's make them feel really terrible about it. 24-hour waiting periods. They have to have a certain doctor perform it, the same one that gave mandatory pamphlet information about how awful it is to have an abortion. Women still did it. So in the state of Texas, for example, there are still on average 55,000 abortions a year, even though they're very stringent abortion laws. That means women want them and women get them. And there isn't a good alternative to that when 10% of, of contraception, even if used correctly, fail. So that's every 100 women who properly have access to, or they have access, they properly use it, they, 10 of them will get pregnant. Serious birth defects usually don't show up until after 16 weeks. So, and then of course the cost of to society and to families for caring for children with serious birth defects, that's, that's massive. That's, it, you know, there are so many complicating nuanced factors that whoever you mentioned on Twitter, honestly, if you're not walking in those shoes, I really don't think people like that have any, any position to, ha to weigh in on this stuff because these, the bottom line is, listen, I gave a talk yesterday and you mentioned my new book, it's called How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, but I gave a talk yesterday uh, at a bookstore on my book and there was a, a reverend that was in the audience, African-American military veteran. He said, listen, this is between a family and their, and their God. I mean, or at a minimum, it's, be, it's, a, it's such a complicated decision. It has to be in the confines of a, a woman and her family. That's what that earlier case, Meyer versus Nebraska got to. This idea of there are certain areas that just aren't for government. And the idea, when women have still figured out how to get abortions because in some instances, that's the only reasonable way they can manage their lives and the complicating factors. And that's not gonna be possible in many parts of the country, period. Plus, Matt, there's, there's nothing off the table to start criminalizing abortion. Right. To me, or, that's the that's the big one. Is That's the big difference in, in my mind is as many barriers as have been erected in all of these states. You, you cited the Texas example. You're not going to jail in most cases today. And in a month, you could be. Yeah, I, I don't think there's going to be a, a limiting principle, at least out of the gate from some of these states. And, uh, and as we're going to also for sure see more women die. So, you know, if, if Alito's a limiting principle is, well, you have another life. Well, what about the life of the woman that again, statistics, Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor has emphasized this during the oral argument Dobbs, 14 times more likely to die, 14 times more likely to die. And there's, there's nothing in this case that says, okay, 
well, states can limit abortion except if it's going to kill the mother. That's off the, that, that's, that's not a limiting principle anymore. Or an 11 year old who is raped and, and made pregnant by her, the, some, some male in, in her life. That is not, there's no limiting principle in this opinion for that to protect a child, a child. The states at this point can do what they want. That's where this is. And you better be in a state that isn't that draconian and ugly when it comes to these kinds of rights. But, you know, Matt, we're seeing these culture wars ramp up in other areas over the past four years to get to get lockdown power by politicians. We're seeing it in Florida, we're seeing it in Texas around immigration, around race, teaching about racial history in schools, discussing the gender, different you know gender patterns or LGBTQ rights, all of these things. I mean, the right-wing radical fringe of society is becoming very powerful in America and they're doing it around what I call a crisis of compassion. A deep, deep psychological crisis of compassion that somehow cruelty wins right now in America politically. So that's not going to stop in these state legislatures at a a 11-year-old rape victim who gets pregnant. And sorry, you better have the baby. We're not going to help you with health care to actually have prenatal care. We're not going to help you with health care when you actually give birth. We're not going to help you take care of the child after the child's born. We're not going to help you even be able to take a few days off from your shift work job with no health insurance in order to even recover from, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to force a pregnant, we're going to force birth on you child. And then you're left to deal with it on your own. You know, that to me is, that's a crisis of compassion. That's an embracing of this cruelty, this, this, this degradation of humanity. And that's frankly, Matt, what do Americans need to do? People are listening to that. I've come to believe, and that's why I wrote the third book. That's where we need to focus. We need to go back to our common humanity and sense of our common sense and our value system and set aside politics because it's eating us alive. Well, I do want to pick up on the point you were making a moment ago about how a lot of what we're seeing in terms of a policy push and a legal push is the result of a very focused, concentrated, decades-long effort by a relatively small subset of our society. They're well-organized, they're well-financed, and they're very, very focused on pushing the, the most extreme versions of laws in certain areas of, of the way we live and the way we organize, and of course, keeping themselves in power on us at the state and at the federal level. Now, I was going to talk for a moment about the whole, this is the, the leak the leak of this ruling and how Republicans have been kind of losing their minds about this. And they're they're going to start an investigation at the Supreme Court. To me, that seems like a distraction from the main substance, but it also points up the, the vast contrast to the other Supreme Court story that was in the news last month, which was the political activities of Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Now you've commented on this issue before, you've written about it in the Hill. To me, I I guess I don't understand why people aren't taking that issue more seriously 
because the Supreme Court is willing to initiate this massive investigation into how could a draft ruling have emerged? You know, that's a tragedy. But when you when you look more closely, as Jane Mayer did in The New Yorker, at the web of influence that Ginny Thomas is maintaining and the influence that she has over Justice Thomas's former clerks through email listservs and the network that they maintain, including the Federalist Society. And what you what really begins to emerge is kind of, it's what Hillary Clinton used to call a vast right-wing conspiracy or Bill Clinton before her. It appears that yes, there is such a conspiracy and it's centered in the Supreme Court. It's centered with the spouse of a Supreme Court justice. I don't understand why that's not more disturbing. That's me on my soapbox, but you're far more informed on the Supreme Court. How disturbing is this? How disturbed should we all be? Well, I, I honestly, I mean, with all the caveats that you're not a lawyer, it, it the fact that the logic of some of this stuff is coming through. I had lunch with a non-lawyer and she said, like you said about the Dobbs draft, wait a minute, how could it be that everything's written in the Constitution? That doesn't make sense to me. And this is another one. I've done a lot of interviews in the last 24 hours and and over and over, reporters will ask me to talk about the leak. And, and I, I'm like, that's not the news. That is not the story. And I do bring up the Ginny Thomas situation because, and this is why, the issue with what happened with Jimmy, Ginny Thomas emailing and texting or texting uh, Mark Meadows saying, take steps to steal the election from Joe Biden and the American people. And then Clarence Thomas didn't recuse himself from three decisions involving the 2020 election, including a case in which he's the sole dissenter in a ruling saying the National Archives need to give Congress information from the White House the sole dissenter. Arguably, he was protecting his wife, right? So the problem with that is just setting aside the, the broader implications that we can talk about is of this conspiracy. And Sheldon Whitehouse, senator out of Rhode Island, has spoken over and over again very eloquently about the massive amounts of dark money that are funding our judiciary in this moment. So we've got to really wonder who's behind check out, all of this. Check out his appearance on this show where that was the, the, his main point was the link between dark money and where we're ending up on issues like this. It, so somebody else is driving that bus. I don't know who it is. It's not voters. We don't know who it is. Somebody has an agenda. The issue, though, is, okay, if you're sitting down as a Supreme Court justice, the whole reason federal ju judges have life tenure is because the framers didn't want them to be biased in their decision making to worry about an election. If J Clarence Thomas is sitting there making these decisions because he's biased by his wife's radicalization, that he's like, whoa, I don't know what I'm going to get when I'm going to come home or, whoa, you know, I agree with her and I'm getting fed all this stuff. If it's changing his decision-making in a case, that's super serious. Mm. This leak is not changing any decision-making. It's embarrassing, maybe. And I, so I agree with you completely. We haven't heard a peep from the Chief Justice. We haven't heard anything out of the Supreme Court saying, at a minimum, he should be recusing himself from other January 6th-related cases. That's never happened. And I'll tell you what's even more disturbing. I've had conversations with people close to Democrats inside the Senate Judiciary Committee shortly after that and said, where are the hearings? Right, where, where, where are the hearings? Where are the hearings on, on Clarence Thomas? And the response was, oh no, you know, there's really nothing we can do about that. The supine complacency of the Democratic Party is despicable. Just to follow up on that for a moment, what bothers me is that the January 6th nexus around Jenny Thomas 
a huge problem in itself. And you've enunciated it very well, but it's the tip of the iceberg because again, and I'm standing on the shoulders of great journalism from Jane Mayer and others. But when you look at the web of connections that Ginny Thomas sits at the center of, that goes to issues where there are amicus briefs being filed before the Supreme Court that relate to all kinds of issues on the Supreme Court docket. And you, you see her activities, again, it's around January 6th, but she maintains a contact list on which she is active of former Supreme Court justices for Clarence Thomas. Former clerks for Supreme Court justices are highly placed. They are in the, they're in the legal firmament. They're across our legal establishment. And so what emerges is, and just to tie this back to the case we're discussing, what emerges is you have a ruling here that, as you've, as you've said, is very much out of the mainstream of public opinion, very much out of the mainstream of what we understand to be how Americans feel about this issue. And you have a, a number of undemocratic results coming from the Supreme Court, results that do not jibe with the sense of where the majority, and in some cases, the vast majority of Americans want to go. How does that come about? How do you have legal rulings and political outcomes that are so far out of step? Well, it, it comes from an organized, focused, and highly funded effort on the right-wing fringe. And the fact that the epicenter of that effort falls inside our Supreme Court, to me, calls into question, why is this person still serving on the court? Why are we allowing this cabal to be run from inside the court? And now what I've gone and done is I've taken the end of a very informative interview with you, and I've, I've, I've gotten on my soapbox about it. I just want to thank you for someone who has been doing a, a lot of really riveting media appearances in the last 24 hours. You are right on the ball. This is a wonderful explanation. We really appreciate having you on Beyond Politics. Well, I enjoyed it and always appreciate the opportunity to talk about these things because they are so important. And I would encourage you know anyone who's listening to, to send the pod to someone else because step one in addressing this is education. Absolutely. And subscribe politics and follow and check out Kimberly Whaley on, on Twitter and social media. Great stuff. Thanks so much. Thank you.